Welcome to a new episode of Movie Schmovie. Yep, that's what this is. Movie Schmovie, episode number 258. Movie Schmovie. My name is Steve, and uh, I'm here with... Ron. And John. There it is. (laughs) Getting better and better every episode, guys. It's like... Oh, yeah. Super smooth. Super smooth. (laughs) We're getting really good at this being all alone and recording from our respective homes thing. Oh, yeah. Right, right. It's almost like that's all we ever do anymore is hang out in our houses and it's kind of crazy that like this is yeah we you said it earlier like this is like a highlight that you get to get to get we get together like every week pretty much and get, get to do this among not much else uh you know for for enjoyment or leisure <laughs> for for the past three or four months <laughs> well i think people have shifted into those routines even people without podcasts like uh, my wife has a sort of regular weekly um happy hour with a couple of old work friends that she like 6:30 on Mondays and then you know 7:30 on Thursdays or whatever there's a yeah. certain group that, that gets together and it's i think it's very awesome and healthy and it's you know it's one of the better uses of of technology that i used to kind of find annoying like i, I never have been much of a video chat guy um, but I do now see that I think everyone feels a little bit less precious about it uh, hopping on you know what i mean yeah yeah it's it is it's necessary now it's necessary it's strange but we're here to talk about a couple of big movies that have just come out on demand uh one is spike lee's the five bloods which is a big netflix movie and then the other is uh one of the bigger uh straight to home releases that was originally intended for theaters and that's judd apatow's uh, uh sort of collaboration with pete davidson king of staten island and i think uh those are pretty interesting movies uh that are very different from each other so i look forward to hearing your thoughts on those but before that i think we wanted to get into a little bit of uh our sort of regularly scheduled quarantine news update a lot of things uh uh became official this week that we may have expected and they've announced some things tell us about the oscar steve <laughs> well i mean basically they've, they've gone to a hard 10 nominees for the best picture category which has always been kind of a, I don't know, I've always felt like that should have been a no-brainer. Like, just to include more titles, more filmmakers, more voices, it seems like that's just something they should always have been doing and not just like a, are there going to be eight or are there going to be nine? You know what I mean? Like, it's it's a year in and year out. It's like a weird uh, metric of what, what makes a movie good enough to get a, a Best Picture nominee. Um announcement but yeah so basically they announced that they've gone to a full you know 10 nominees in the best picture category and some of it's still a little ambiguous but you know just measures being put in place and this is probably one of them just widening that category a bit to be more inclusive and um you know maybe give films of a smaller nature of lower budget independent distribution you know minority voices whatever you know their intentions are like just to kind of get more pictures more movies, um, more voices out there, you know, for people to be aware of, you know, that maybe they never heard of these movies before. But so I think it's a good thing. Um, And on top of that, they also announced that they were going to be pushing the Oscars back um, broadcast. I think I think the broadcast was supposed to be in like early March. I heard February, but yeah. okay, yeah. Late, late February, early March, something like that. That's going to be going back now to I want to say it's April 25th. Right. Let's see here. Sam Rooney was pushed back a week because of disastrous flooding in Los Angeles in 38. In 68, it was delayed two days following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And in 81, it was put off by 24 hours after Ronald Reagan was shot in Washington, D.C. So, 
this is the biggest, you know, like in terms of time and and how far in advance it's happened. Those were really in the moment decisions, like week of, couple weeks out. This is obviously, you know, eight months before um, deciding to push it back. They've kind of opened it that you know, basically movies from you know the beginning of 2020 through February 28th of 2021. So they've added like two months of eligibility to just kind of, you know, obvious reasons just to kind of allow more films to be eligible for awards so that they don't have, I guess, so they don't have to cancel the thing as a whole. Cause we don't, we still don't know what movies are going to look like in the fall for sure. Even though it seems like a lot of movie theaters are going to be opening soon, which fucking blows my mind. But well, it's interesting that that news came out at the same time as then them confirming the 10 nominees. Cause it's almost like we're definitely going to have 10 nominees and we're also going to postpone it so we have time for 10 movies to come out <laughs> before the next ceremony. <laughs> right, right, right. Are, are VOD movies going to be included in this bunch of things? Or, like, you know, straight to, straight to video films going to be included in some of this? I mean, that, there's no telling, right? Maybe back in, I want to say it was the end of, it might have even been back in, like, April, they mentioned that... Um, uh, end of April, early May, they mentioned that basically the the Academy actually announced that films that had previously planned theatrical releases that then went to VOD could still qualify for the Oscars without a qualifying theatrical run. But they have, but those movies have to be made available to the voting body on the like they have a special like screening room site that like they watch these movies on, like so that they can actually see them for you know eligibility. So basically in in the world of coronavirus like any movie that had was planned to be released in theaters or had an announced date in theaters that either got pushed back, you know, pushed back and then decided to go to VOD or whatever, basically like, you know, King of Staten Island would be an example of something that would be eligible, but movies that are straight VOD that never were scheduled to go into theaters or never have a theatrical qualifying run, those would still not be eligible for the the Oscars. Hmm. Yeah. Damn. I think this is going to start a conversation because, you know, some people have been watching movies on VOD that maybe never would have been seen before. And there may be a conversation of like, you know, smaller movies that would have never been put in theaters or smaller movies that just don't make sense to put in theaters financially, that there should be some way to qualify these films um, for Oscar eligibility, maybe in the future. But I think, you know, this is probably a starting point of seeing, oh, well, it never made it to theaters and they might decide to never put movies like The Lovebirds or, you know, King of Staten Island in theaters anymore. And there's an argument to be made that like some of those movies could still be very good, but it just doesn't, they don't find, you know, they're not going to find an audience in theaters like they could on VOD. So I think in the next few years, that's going to change. But for this year, because of the, you know, coronavirus implications like it it had to have already had an announced release date to be qualified interesting even if we don't rush out to the theaters this this late this summer and early in the fall or whenever they start reopening right even if we don't do that those windows will give movies a chance to to have a theatrical release sure so they can almost release movies into empty theaters no one is going to just so they can technically get over that totally. <laughs> hurdle yep. of, of eligibility. But, I mean, I don't really know for something like Tenet, which I think is a movie maybe we were about to talk about. I don't know if a movie like that 
you know, let's say it comes out in the fall and people aren't quite ready for it, uh, that experience again. And a certain sort of moviegoer braves the whatever the moviegoing experience looks like at that point, right? To go see a, a big movie like Tenet. Um, how quickly do you think Tenet will then go to the home platforms? Because it, that might, at that point, still be the way most people are watching movies. I mean, have you guys given that any thought to like, is the theatrical release going to be almost like a technicality just to make directors like Christopher Nolan happy, but that the yeah, real meat is still going to be? I mean, it's almost like now that's shifted, whereas it used to be theatrical over home. Now it almost seems like more people, at least that I talk to, are like, well, I don't have to see it right away. I can wait, you know, but I don't want to wait personally. Uh, how long would I wait to see Tenet? That, that movie might be the flashpoint for me. Like, will it get me out to the theater? Because that's what you kind of want to do with a Christopher Nolan movie. What do you guys think about that? Uh, I I mean, Steve and I, and, and we've all been talking about this a lot. Uh, I think Steve and I kind of emphasize them more than uh, anything that if this movie releases now, it's going to be a catastrophic failure. On a real level, they're going to be in the negative in terms of you know, if this comes out and people do not go to the theaters, I don't think that anybody's ready to go back to the theaters on the level that it that they need to, that theaters need people to come out for this to win. And I have no idea how they're going to reconcile losing that much money in this act of pride where they could just put it out on VOD, see what happens versus this gamble of paying, you know, it going out to the theaters and it may be having some bad press behind it being a failure, which can inform people not seeing it when it comes on VOD. So it could create a, a ripple effect, whether they realize it or not, of a reputation of it being bad because nobody went to go see it, which is how people think of it. And then, you know, the second stage, which is people as a result of that reputation not going to see it in the second stage of its life, which is VOD. So I, I don't know. I feel like that, but I could be totally wrong. Then. Well, that follows weeks of people kind of tracking the drama around the release date, because for the longest time, they held on to that July release date, and then they started releasing trailers that said coming to theaters that didn't say July, you know, didn't say any date, just said coming to theaters, which I felt like was kind of a a statement to say, yes, you're going to see this movie soon, and it is going to be in theaters. We're not switching to announcing it for for home release, but I don't know, why is it, it feels so weirdly stubborn. Is it Christopher Nolan? Is it the studio? Like, why is this movie the sort of last one holding on to that status. And I guess it when it announced that it was going, you know, postponing, they, they let go of it. But Steve, what do you make of that? Just the fact that this movie was the one that was was kind of the conversation piece because it seemed like it was the last one that had held on to a date for the longest time. I mean, honestly, I think big picture, this is a Christopher Nolan conversation. Like, I think, I think if I were Warner Brothers, the movie that I would want to be the one welcoming people back to theaters would be a movie like Wonder Woman 1984. That's a what they call a four quadrant movie. Everybody would go see that whether or not I'm in that group. But I mean like, you know, if they're, if they're going back into the fall, playing it safe, that's a movie that, you know, would be a a bigger, no brainer financial success. I mean, Christopher Nolan is a brand. People will go see every movie he puts out. I will, we all would. But I think just His financially, movies are huge. right? I mean, I, yeah. I don't just mean financially. I just mean literally. They themselves are spectacles, yeah, and they usually have a certain amount of mystery involved as to what they are. So yeah, there is always like a, a bit of excitement, even though he's a little bit more boutique than, than that's, a superhero film. That's the key. That's the key. Is that in you know his his movies make a lot of money, but they also cost a lot of money. So just financially, 
you know, if a theater is opening to 25 to 50% of capacity and they're still, and just, just talking about like a theatrical, you know, experience for, you know, the, for the exhibitor, like for the theater chains who are hurting so bad to open and really have full overhead. Like they, they, they're not going to have 25% of people working. They're not going to have 25% of concessions being made like they're going to be doing these things and have the overhead that they always have and you know if they're showing these films they're paying the licensing fees you know they're paying their bills of running a theater at at close to a hundred percent like that math just doesn't make sense to me to say that that is going to be the kind of movie or the movie that's going to get everybody back out to the theater i don't i don't think it would and i agree with ronald that i would be very surprised like yeah I wouldn't be shocked because it is Christopher Nolan and I do think he's got like a like an X factor but I would be shocked if you know Tenet comes out and makes a hundred million dollars you know in in the weekend or the weekends of its opening like I just don't I just don't see that happening and I just feel like if they were going to try to bust the doors down with a movie that could do that that movie is definitely Wonder Woman and that's the same studio and I think it's really just a Christopher Nolan uh, not issue, but it's a Christopher Nolan conversation. I think he wants to be, you know, that's that that to be part of his legacy, like that he is a filmmaker that is going to, you know, get people back into theaters, and his movie is going to be the movie that welcomes them back. Even though now officially it's not the first movie coming out um, in theaters if, if they actually do open in time. There's some small movie that got announced that's coming out like the week before, but um, I'm very intrigued by it. But it also is like a very, to me personally, on a real baseline level, I just can't believe that like, you know, you're talking weeks to months, like, I, I can't believe that they would like, how rushed this all feels to me. Like, I can't believe that there's conversations of like, people filling up a movie theater and having the option to wear masks or not wear masks, you know, within the next month. I, that just blows my mind. Um, but... No, it's crazy. It's um, truly crazy. But yeah, I don't know, man. Like, I'm I'm very intrigued by it. I will not be going to the movie theaters for quite a long time still, to be honest. Um, even to see a movie like this, which I'm dying to see. Um, so yeah, like Ronald was saying, like, this could be something where, you know, it doesn't make the money that they think it's going to make, or it's it doesn't, you know, bring in the second coming of movies, you know, for the year or for the decade or whatever. Um, and, it, and it, maybe people don't see it enough. Maybe the word of mouth's not there. Maybe... You know, press outlets aren't sending their critics to see it if they don't screen the film digitally for for press writers and not as many people can review it. You know, there's other factors like that that are helping get the word out about movies and whether they're, you know, have critical praise or not. But and in his movies usually do. But that that could hurt a movie that isn't being constantly written about outside of the fact that it's back in theaters and hey, come see this movie in the theater. Um, But I don't know. All interesting points and. You know, I'm curious to see if they stick with it, if it's if it stays tight, especially if things like kind of continue to spike in certain states. And, you know, this isn't even an across the board thing like NATO that represents the theaters, you know, across you know the country. If if, you know, certain states aren't at a phase where they can even open it, they're not even at like a capacity beyond, you know, they're not like at least 80 percent open in this country. Like, why? Why would you do it? Like, why would you pay that money to do that? It's crazy. It's almost like the only reason that that movie became that conversation piece yeah. is because Bond 
already got yanked off the schedule for a much later date. Fast and Furious got pushed back a year. Black Widow, ambiguous. You know what I mean? Yeah, like all these totally. big movies that were coming out in the spring that were in that immediate crush, those those April and May films, those got put back like a, a respectable amount. Everyone thought everything was going to be gearing back up by July. And so they didn't think they would have to move Tenet. And then I think it may have been like some level of, like you said, chicken or brinksmanship that yeah. Christopher Nolan, uh, who seems like he would have been one of the people to recognize it's like the Fast and the Furious or it's like James Bond. It's like, we just need to take this off the schedule. And then when we know where we can put it again, let's start the marketing back up because this needs to be a giant event, right? Totally. This movie needs yes. to be not not like an experiment to see if you can get people back into the theater right, at this time. Right. So I'm, I'm very curious as to whether the, what date holds for that because when you put it that way, Stephen, just a matter of weeks that some of these movies would be opening. Um, yeah, it, it seems like whatever movie comes out in that atmosphere is going to be a sacrificial lamb just to see how, how the audiences feel. It doesn't seem like anybody's... Can any, none of the normal metrics we have for like what is going to be a hit apply to this current world? Right, definitely. Especially on top of that, if if this you know there's been a lot of rumors about the origin of this film. If it's truly like an Inception uh, sequel, the way that a lot of people think it is, that's even more special. Or even in the right. same world as Inception, or even you know there's there's things to that that can make this an even bigger hit that just will get lost in all of this. It's just really hard for me to imagine that they will blow something so huge. Something that could, especially with this level of secrecy beside, behind it, what's even weirder on top of that, and, and to, none, of the, none of the movies that have been moved around are trending. That's scary. Right, right. The, the you know, the, 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 the date's been moved twice, it hasn't been it hasn't been trending on Twitter worldwide or in within the U.S. when those changes have come. That is scary. I'm not trying to say that yeah. Twitter is the gauge, but if they're not talking about it on Twitter or Instagram or other social media, there's something wrong. I mean, if we're talking about the types of giant hits that these movies are intended to be, yeah. you know, that a Marvel movie is, that a Fast and the Furious movie, that a Bond film, that a Christopher Nolan, especially a big action Christopher Nolan movie coming out in the middle of summer, that was supposed to be a massive film. So yeah, it's weird to sort of consign it to a lesser fate. Um, but maybe it'll continue to get bumped back. I mean, maybe a lot of these things will just continue to, to, to you know get postponed because that seems like the only way to ensure an audience for them. But I'm with you, Steve, 25% capacity at best. Like, yeah, the, the process of making money is going to be slower. Um, yeah. Getting tickets is going to be a little bit harder. Uh, there's so much about it that's, that's I'm sort of, I have a sense of dread almost <laughs> to see what it's like when, when it first reopens. But it sounds like none of us are planning on going back right when it reopens anyway. So maybe we'll have to We'll have to find a friend who's who's braver and and perhaps more foolish than us and, and see what they <laughs> like about it. But I don't know any even the like even the absolute movie hounds that I know, just the the absolute film addicts that I know, uh, th they are among the people who are the loudest about saying I'm not in any hurry to go back. Um, so I don't know what that means. You know, yeah. it is weird. There's like a loss of momentum for all of these properties. You're right, Ronald. There's a weird window in that level of excitement people were supposed to be having right now about you know, some of those, some of those movies. And it's hard to imagine you can pluck a movie off the schedule uh, and 
and and watch it six, eight, ten months later and not have it lose a little something. You know what I mean? I don't know. Right. I, I I feel that way about movies and music that there's a sort of freshness to it, but oftentimes that can be deceptive. You can see something that you find out was shot five years ago and you won't know. But sometimes you kind of feel it. You know, sometimes you kind of feel the the Definitely. age on it. So yeah. I guess we'll be watching that really closely. I wonder what the first movie that the three of us will see together in the theaters will be. I wonder. Oh, I think it's going to be a Marvel film. That's my theory. A Marvel or a Star War, or maybe you guys can get me out to the Fast and Furious movie. If, if that's the <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> we'll all be in, in six-foot-wide bubbles, you know what I mean? There won't yeah. be this usual uh, interaction, yeah. but... All right, well, let's talk about some actual movies that did come out. Um, what do you guys want to start with? Uh, King of Staten Island? That sounds good. Yeah, well, let's start off with King of Staten Island. All right. Well, what do you guys think about this uh, movie, which is co-written by Pete Davidson and Judd Apatow, and it kind of slots Pete Davidson into the Judd, the Judd Apatow formula of, uh, I heard him recently say it, and I thought he said it really beautifully. He said that he finds people that he thinks could be a movie and that he doesn't think anyone else is going to make a movie out of this person. And then he focuses on working with them to make their movie. And then you can picture like 40 year old virgin for Steve Carell, um, uh, knocked up for Seth Rogen. I mean, these are, this is Judd Apatow using his clout train wreck to, to yeah, train wreck with Amy Schumer. This is him using his clout to turn someone into a potential marquee star. Do you know what I mean? That, yeah. that they, that they might not be able to be, uh, otherwise, uh, how do you think the Pete Davidson Judd Apatow combo worked? In general, I liked it. I mean, like I thought that it was a really strong performance Pete Davidson uh, gave. I, like again, when I mentioned before, um, and now as I'm about to mention, I forgot that damn movie again from Hulu, um, Big Time Adolescence. Um, those both of these movies, I kind of like thought he was really great in. Um, I think in general, the 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 piece that I just feel like maybe the movie overall, like most of Apatow's films, who I, in general I really like and I really like most of his movies, um, they just, they kind of like lose direction for me at, at times. Like they kind of, the tone kind of loses direction and it becomes a little more uneven in this movie. Um, and there are parts or there are little stories going on in the movie that I kind of wanted to spend more time with and they kind of just kind of fade away or they don't really get to spend much time with uh, some characters in the movie that I thought were really interesting. But I thought some great performances. Bill Burr was great. Uh, Marissa Tomei, Pete Davidson. Um, and yeah, and I mean, my dad's a firefighter and not that that matters at all to watching a movie, but I definitely can relate to a lot of things in uh, the movie in terms of sacrifice and being a kid and being scared about your dad being a firefighter. Like I, I always felt that way when I was younger and even as an adult, I was always worried about that. So that part of, for me was definitely relatable. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think overall I, I didn't love the movie. I, I did, I did enjoy it. I thought it was pretty good and I really wish it was maybe trimmed down a little bit, a little tighter and, and maybe kind of focused in a little more on, you know, a couple characters in the movie. And, and, and I mean, just to point out, like some of his friends and, and his, you know, his girlfriend or, you know, secret girlfriend, I kind of wanted to see his relationships with them a little more um, just because it seemed like that's kind of where he's going as a person, you know, with whatever future he has in this film. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Overall, I thought it was pretty good. Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Judd Apatow movies. Um one thing that I felt throughout this film was sometimes I wish 
that uh, it felt more like Judd's adult hand was touching this film more than a 26-year-old kid. Uh, there's something about the his character and how underdeveloped his his processing things is and and uh he was very unlikable for a lot of this film i mean like let's be honest uh and there was there were points where he started to soften up but i think a better movie would have kind of had a little bit of both and it feels it feels like it was more of me disliking him and him acting like a cartoon character um that really sometimes didn't amount to anything it did these things didn't necessarily pay off besides him just being an asshole in the moment and um i I don't know how i felt about that but even with that said overall i enjoyed the movie somehow somehow when bill burr came into the the picture and the dynamic between the two of them started I don't know, man, Bill Burr does this thing, you know, between the cartoon that he does on Netflix and this, where his kind of rough around the edges, yelling sort of thing. We've had, all of us have had somebody like that in our lives, an uncle, uh, you know, a friend of a friend. And you can see that there's a lot of love and that, 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 that conquers all and all that stuff. But Pete Davidson is very unlikable in every in every facet of this movie and sometimes in real life like it's it's hard to understand you know even if somebody lost somebody in 9-11 he he's thrust into fame in a way that a lot of us can't understand and you know he's a little he feels like he's a little lost he's he speaks from the cuff a lot but some of that just feels like he's being a dickhead that's not really finding any balance in any of it um like okay so so I'll feel like I'll get, I'll give you an example. Like uh, when I hear Kurt Cobain, who wasn't a very old person, speak in places, I felt like okay, he can grow to be this person. In in the end, he can like he's growing to be this person. It doesn't feel good to him right now, but he's gonna grow into something that I'm gonna I'm gonna, you know, I never feel that with Pete, and I have never felt this with Pete through his SNL stuff, through his movie, and it 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 messed with me a lot. And maybe because I was a bad kid that went through life like that for a while, I just, there were no redeeming qualities until Bill Burr came. And I feel like it wasn't Pete that made the movie likable. It shouldn't have been like that. So that's it. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess I would echo your feelings, Ronald, on my general attitude towards Pete Davidson. I've always kind of found him to be, if funny, not in a way that I like, like not in a way that warms me up to him as a personality, you know, and I've seen him be funny when he's being really vulnerable about his depression and things that are wrong with him. And a few times on SNL, despite being not particularly polished as a performer, I have been kind of beguiled by how much of an open book he is and by, by what a messy person he's willing to be. Do you know what I mean? There's something about that, that you, you, you do get drawn in by that energy sometimes when someone seems to be that raw. Um, but it never seemed like it was really accompanied with a particular style of comedy or, I could, or an aesthetic that I could really wrap my head around. But I, I, again, I've laughed at him in certain sketches in certain moments. And a few times I have found him funny for the reason he seems to think he's funny, which is that he seems like he doesn't give a fuck, you know. Um, and I just don't know how much I like that energy as a performer or as acting. And that's why I asked Steve when we were talking about doing this movie, like... Um, 
if you had seen Big Time Adolescence, I, I don't think we had this conversation on the show, where I just said, I get the impression he doesn't try that hard. And you said, no, 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 it's a big, in Big Time Adolescence, it's a real performance, you know? And then I saw the trailer for this, and I was like, yeah, this does look like a, uh, a real performance of sorts in the depth of, of the story that in real life his father died in 9-11, and this is the story of a, of a, of a person whose father was a firefighter and died, um, and how he's lived with that. So I think all of that allowed me, I feel like I had a warmer reception to the movie than you guys did, because I was processing all those feelings about Pete Davidson, so it's almost like I started from the perception of not liking him very much, and then this movie kind of peeled back the layers of the <laughs> onion and made uh. me go, I guess I can't really be too mad at him when I see that he's trying in whatever messed up way and he's got these friends that he he at least tries to be loyal to and he tries to have this girlfriend and I could totally see how his depression was the thing that was keeping him from being a good person if that makes any sense you know and it's very hard to deal with that when you kind of want to reach out and help somebody you almost want to hug somebody but you also want to push them <laughs> and shake them yeah uh, so it was interesting I I do think that the movie almost tricks you into thinking it's kind of a another man-child movie where you're supposed to care about this guy who's a dirtbag and doesn't really do anything and you might wonder why do I why are we watching another movie about you know an aimless white guy who hasn't found himself yet right but I think about maybe it's that halfway point you guys are talking about but when the when the when the dynamic of how he's going to relate to his father's legacy through these other firefighters that he comes to know like Bill Burr's character that when that dynamic kicks in and it becomes less about the sort of battle between him and Bill Burr, who is this guy who started dating his mom, which is kind of a thrust of the plot. When that sort of turns into this other thing, which is him relating to his father's past, I really sort of embraced what the movie was trying to do because it really seemed like at that moment, it sort of revealed that it's about a person who's lived with trauma and, and how they are trying to cope and how they damage the people around them and how the people around them in this case, and this is where, again, I would say the Judd Apatow magic for me was strong in this one because I loved how regular the people were. I loved feeling like, um, I don't know, like Bill Burr's character could have been a, a, a comic villain or a big jerk, but instead he's got so much heart, it's unbelievable. You know, Marissa Tomei's character could have been this kind of put-upon mother who's just too busy to, to stop and notice, and she's so depressed. But she was this kind of multifaceted person who sometimes in, would be one way and another scene should be another way. And I liked all of his friends, too. The it, It's that Apatow thing of seeing someone hang out with people. Uh, and for this movie, for me, much of the time, I do agree it's it's got that shaggy dog structure and it does drag on, but um, I, I kind of enjoyed the hangout aspect of this movie. And there are some scenes that, that I really enjoyed how much we got to breathe. Uh, particularly, there's a scene late in the movie where he's sitting at a restaurant talking with uh, a bunch of firefighters about his dad. And I mean, from an acting standpoint, from a, like a human warmth standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint, from a character standpoint, I thought that scene was Excellent. I thought it, it was beautiful. So good. Um, yeah. And every person around that table's face is telling you something, a life of depth. And the acting, Bill Burr blew me away in this movie. I've yeah. seen him be good before. I've always I've always thought he's like smarter than you might think he is. And he's very un-PC. And I have a, a troubled relationship myself with his comedy. I think he's very funny, but I also think he's, he's sort of one of those guys who enjoys being wrong, you know? And I don't know how much I love that. But um, I, right. I think as an actor, he, he reveals these little layers. Again, he's always 
been, like you said, the loudmouth who sort of reveals that he kind of feels bad after he was an asshole, you know? And and this character is that. And so I felt like this is as much the Bill Burr movie as it is the, the Pete Davidson movie. So I know that was a long way around saying that I, I just kind of soaked in the energy of this movie and, and found myself enjoying it much more than I expected to, honestly, when I heard that it was two hours and 20 minutes long. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I, I with all the complaints that I had, I still, I still enjoyed it, man. I still, there's something about watching a, a person try to find some balance in their lives, especially when, you know, his mom kind of gave up on him at one point. She just was like, get out of here. <laughs> yeah. I love that. There's man. a very funny, very mean scene where you see just how much she has given up on him, too. Yeah. And it's kind of a coming out for Marissa Tomei's character. And I did read where someone said they would rather see the movie about her and her relationship with Bill Burr as the and focus, <laughs> as opposed to the Pete Davidson story. And I could kind of see that, but I really think the movie, because it's Apatow, it kind of did both of those movies uh, in at once. And I think we're about to talk about a Spike Lee movie that he traditionally maybe bites off more than most directors would, you know, for a movie too. And I think sometimes these directors, they, they don't necessarily notice that they have two or three movies happening at, at one time. And sometimes that's their goal. And I don't know, I think Apatow's movies... I mean, I can't think of one that was structured tightly, uh, unless I'm, unless I'm wrong. Have any of them been? <laughs> uh, no. But just to echo what you said, Steve, I would have liked to have seen more of his friends too. I thought the dynamic there was really funny, and those actors all felt like real dirtbags to me, yeah. real lovable dirtbags. And I, there's something about that that Staten Island Pete Davidson quality that gave this movie a charm to me. I mean. Uh, the Five Bloods was shot on location in Vietnam and really benefits from that. And this movie was shot on location in Staten Island. And it has a similar effect of just, it, it gives you the mood. You know what I mean? It just, it totally tells the story, just the visuals. There was something, I, something w weird about that movie got me emotional. I think it was how kind the people were to him in the fire station. Not even like the round table thing. That was like, obviously a tearjerker, but just how kind they were when he was like walking around. I thought that was something so... Yeah amazing about that and maybe it's something that i haven't especially with everything that's happening with like police and people have kind of brought to attention that the fire department is kind of an incredible aspect of society that people really don't talk about the camaraderie um how much they help the community and i think that i didn't think about how kind <laughs> that some of those people must be uh and seeing them those scenes it, it did something to me man it made me kind of teary-eyed it you know you, you're a kid that's that's moving around aimlessly and you find this group of people that really just wants to help. <laughs> you know, they know you for five minutes, but they they see the connection. They they, they, write, they see themselves in you. And, and that's something really cool about that. So, yeah, it was it was a it was a solid movie, man. There's a moment between Steve Buscemi and Bill Burr that really underlines that that you just said, Ronald, where uh, Bill Burr is kind of starting to lighten up towards Pete Davidson mm -hmm. and 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 Steve Buscemi is looking at him and says uh talking about talking about Pete Davidson's dad saying what was the first thing you thought when he died you wondered if he had a kid right and in that moment you see how Bill Burr feels like oh shit in all this time I could have reached out I could have sought this kid out you know I knew about it I thought about it then and I just kind of went on with my life um, but that question that all these firemen have about each other of like, what, what kind of people are they leaving behind? You know, if, if, if somebody falls, like, so I felt like there was kind of an extended family aspect to that, Ronald, of like, 
they're kind to him because he stands in for the little brothers, the sons, the people in their lives who they yeah, know yeah, they would yeah, hate definitely. to leave behind the way that the way that his dad left him behind. I mean, it helps that his dad is a little bit of a legend amongst these guys. But even if he weren't, I think they would be like, no, you've been part of this. They even say something to him like that at one point. They say, you, your sacrifice is important or so, someone thanks him for his sacrifice. That's what happens. And you realize, okay, someone's going to recognize that he, as a family member of a firefighter, he too was part of that equation. Yeah. So great. that part was great, man. And that's really where you feel the connection between him and Bill Burr really kick off. And that's kind of like the, the main part of the rest of the movie is like their their connection and their understanding of how they can help one another. And just, yeah, just opening up and just kind of and, and taking help where it's being offered. And I think that there's um that... That whole dinner sequence, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that that um I think Bashemi has the line where he's like, "Your dad was a hero, and heroes are necessary, and they should have be allowed to have families." That that fucking destroyed me. That line like yeah. fucked me up, and and I love that he even like brought it back to like when we were at the ball game and you made that comment, like this is how I felt about what you said, and he says that, and then you know Pete, you can just see it like it kind of hits him, and he's like, "Well, fuck, you know, yeah, that's true, like." And he, I think he says, like, yeah, you're right. There's there's two sides to every story. Just the perspective shift there, I think just from there to the end of the movie, it just, you know, I was really feeling a, a different way about the movie. Um, but, yeah, overall, I did really like the movie. I just, it, it does, it just suffers some from some of the stuff we've already discussed, just like some of the pacing and uh, not enough of some of the things that I loved the most about the movie, which is some of that hang element, like, with the friends and with the girlfriend and like seeing more um, emotion with him and her, I would, you know, I would have liked to see that more um, beyond just kind of getting to see what happens with them towards the end of the movie. But yeah, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the stuff about him as a comedian or just as an act. I don't know, as an actor, I admittedly don't really follow him much. And I mean, in the last like year, obviously I've seen more and more of him and I obviously know him from SNL and I've seen him in movies here and there, but beyond him just kind of going next level in terms of celebrity from who he's dated or who he's been around or whatever. I just feel like, you know, in the last like three months, I've just, you know, with the Hulu film and like his Netflix special and this, like I've definitely become more aware of him. And while I don't really necessarily find him like super funny, I just really find him interesting, you know, whether or not I think he's like a good guy or a funny comedian, I just kind of think his story and like what he's doing is interesting. And, uh, you know, I just I kind of like this movie, and I and I, and I really like the last shot of the film too. There is almost no implication in this movie that anything has really been solved, or that that there's like a a new world we've arrived at. But you can't say that the characters haven't changed since the beginning. You know, so it it again it feels it feels relatable in that way. Yeah, definitely. So this is this is a good head though. I guess is that is that what we're saying? Like, yeah, absolutely. All right, so to Five Bloods. Um, this movie is huge, right? This is a big movie. I mean, like, it's a big movie for Spike Lee, and it feels like a big movie for Netflix. I, I read into how it came to be just a little bit. It seemed like Netflix was just the entity that, that agreed to, 
to do it, but it was existing as a script for a while before that, and then Spike Lee and a guy rewrote it, and it sounds like they totally added the African-American aspect to it, according to Wikipedia. Well, either way, so much goes into a Spike Lee movie as far as people's preconceptions about what kind of director he is, and you know he's always got lots of ideas on his mind, like I said earlier. So, I don't know, did you guys have that certain kind of giddiness about watching this movie, and did you feel that same spark that you had when you first put on The Irishman, of like, wow, it's kind of neat that I'm sitting down, and Netflix is giving me a brand new Scorsese film. I felt like, wow, Netflix has given me like a, an epic Spike Lee movie. I almost couldn't believe I was watching it in this way. Yeah, um, I'm a, anybody that knows me knows I'm a huge Spike Lee fan. Um, I helped, I put some money towards this crowdfunded movie, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, uh, a couple years ago. Um, I try to give him money whenever I can. Uh, I think he's one of our greatest homegrown American storytellers and uh it's it's always been kind of interesting to me that people are kind of coming around to to say that he's he's a great director now that you know in the light of, in light of everything that's kind of happened in the last couple years with uh you know police brutality and such um so I came in, yeah, kind of feeling similar. Do the right thing. Never gets less current, you know, and that's a sad statement about our, our country, but it attests to his genius as a filmmaker, for sure. That was the first film I watched with my dad, um, Do the Right Thing. He showed it to me when I was very young. <laughs> he just turned it on and was like, hey, I, I know this might be a little crazy, but I want you to see this film. And... Uh, <laughs> I've been I've been hooked ever since. So I came in really excited, you know, I... Um, it felt I could feel it. So what what Spike Lee's been doing? This is the last thing I'm gonna say about him. What Spike Lee's been doing lately to promote his stuff is he'll just wear the gear. He'll just have the hats on during um, interviews, and then he was like, "Okay, well, my movie's coming out soon." The trailer came, and I was like, "Oh fuck, I gotta see this thing." So I was super excited. <laughs> that's that's how I came in feeling. You're right, John. It is like a. It it did feel like very special to feel the uh the ability to just like sit in my basement like with a nice tv and surround sound and watch a spike lee movie on netflix um especially because i feel like a couple years ago like watching black Klansmen in theaters was also a it felt really uh special seeing that in theaters too especially uh with you know the timeliness of what what ha like how he included the footage of Char charlottesville <coughs> excuse me um in that film but he he's just like He's just doing something really different, and um, I, I feel like people could make a case that he's just, like, kind of entered a phase where he's just, like, kind of, I don't want to say stepped up, or what, I don't even know, like, I don't know the right word, but, like, something different is happening in this movie, and obviously it's, like, so timely, and it's 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 almost magical how relevant it is, and, and what footage he's able to include in this film, and, and kind of how he decides to show that footage, it kind of rattles you a little bit, but then you kind of also laugh with it um, or at it, depending on which which scene you're talking about. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I just feel like this movie just feels really special, and it's 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 an experience for sure to watch. And I think one of the most interesting things I wanted to talk to you guys about, um, just in the scope. It's funny you mentioned the Irishman earlier, John. Um, but like looking at a movie like this and and the scope of it, the fact that they shot in Vietnam, how big the cast becomes and and is when we start the movie, but it's kind of crazy that this movie was made for like roughly thirty-five to forty-five million dollars, depending where you look at it. But that was it. Yeah. So yes. Um, 
But but the thing I wanted to mention or kind of get your takes on was, what did you think about the decision? And this is no spoiler, but in the flashbacks, not to have other actors playing our leads oh, and not man. even really to have them like digitally de-aged really. Um, what did you guys think about that? How did you react to that? Like, did you know that going into the movie? I had no, I, I had no idea, man. And I thought that it was a, a really amazing device because I was thinking about, damn, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but some, some of the people in, in some of the flashbacks, uh, that's the, that's the last time they saw. Him. So right, if exactly. if you're thinking about if you're thinking about a memory that is 20 years removed from when you were in it or 40 years removed, it's really hard to picture yourself the age that you were when it was happening. Right. And I thought it was something really fucking cool to make them the ages that they were currently thinking about the past cuz sometimes it feels like that. Sometimes when I have dreams about the past, I am the age I am now. <laughs> and, and people are. Absolutely. And so I, I thought that was fucking genius, man. I couldn't get over that. I got to be honest, Steve. For like the first like hour, I could not. I, I was like, I cannot believe they did this. This is genius. I, I was like, I kept saying it to Aaron over and over and over and over again. But I thought it was a cool choice. Yeah, I, I would agree. I loved that choice. Uh, like it took me a minute to grasp exactly what was going on because at first I thought it was just Delroy Lindo because the other guys were kind of in the background of a yeah. shot in the yeah. helicopter. And I was like, oh, it's cool that they got Delroy Lindo to play himself back in the day because he kind of seems like a guy you could digitally de-age a little bit and he would look great like Samuel L. Jackson or someone like that who yeah. like you could, you know, you could you could say, well, this performance is so key to this movie that we want to we want him. to uh, yeah. keep it intact. But then I was like, oh no, all those other guys are the same actors too and actually my wife noticed it before I did because I was you know she was a little confused about what was happening I was sure it was a flashback but I didn't catch till maybe a couple minutes later that uh, all of the actors were playing their younger selves and I guess for listeners we should be clear that in the the movie begins in the present day with Clark Peters and Isaiah Whitlock Jr. and um and Delroy Lindo and that other guy, I'm not going to remember his name. Eddie is the character's name. Do you guys know that? Yeah, Norm Lewis. Norm Lewis. Um, all faces you've seen before to varying degrees. Uh, th- they are the, we see them in the present day at the beginning. And then at different points, we flash back to uh, their past in Vietnam at, where, for relevant information that is going to help us understand why they're going back to Vietnam now and what exactly happened back in the day. And... Um, uh, uh, yeah, I thought it, once we established them in the present day, there was something that was kind of a relief about not having to get used to younger actors potentially doing yeah, impressions yeah, of these yeah. older actors. Um, yeah. The only thing that you you missed was that chance to like, wow, do some great job of casting some actor that you love and not realize before that, oh, he really is like a young Clark Peters or something. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's the only thing you miss with that. But I think what they trade for that is just that continuity of character and the fact that the flashbacks, like the aspect ratio, <clears throat> aspect ratio changes, the film stock changes. They were sort of more like war footage and less like eye on the ground. And that does make you think this is sort of a mind's eye looking back. I mean, just from a cinematic standpoint, Spike Lee was telling you that, that this might be more of the way these guys remember it and less of exactly what it was. Um, And yeah, I thought it was visually 
poetic <laughs> to see them playing their younger selves because the actors were doing a little bit to seem more like young men who are engaged in being soldiers and less like old old guys who are kind of back uh, uh, you know, and reminiscing, but, um, no, I think the actors made it work. And I think Spike Lee's filming, uh, techniques and cinematic ideas made it, made it work. I mean, I, I was in the middle of this walk going, I wonder if Martin Scorsese feels silly when he looks at this <laughs> and goes, I didn't have to slap all that, all those pixels all over my, my actors to make people believe, uh, that this is the same person. But I, I think it really depends on the content and the context. And in this movie, it worked and it felt like one more bold thing that Spike Lee tried amongst the, I lost count, maybe 19, 20 bold things he does in this movie, just yeah. from a cinematic standpoint, the way he films an actor, the way a scene plays out, uh, the way that news footage and photographs and history and fiction are woven together. What the heck kind of movie was this? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like th this was, this was an epic. It, it has like all these themes that have to do with all the relevant racial stuff. And, and it's so, it's got so much to say about America, but it's also got a lot to say about America's relationship with the world and with Vietnam. And, uh, and, uh, I mean, I, I honestly, I don't know. It was, it was like a comedy and an adventure and a horror movie and a war movie, uh, and a Spike Lee movie that deals with race at the same time. And I was kind of continually engrossed by not knowing what the heck was going to happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a ride. It is a ride, man. It It is so much of an adventure film that, like, you know, it, it runs a little long, uh, but there are parts, especially when they get into searching for what they're searching for, where things get so crazy that it's like, what, what am I, what am, like you were saying, what am I watching? I do like the idea, and I didn't think about this until you guys, uh, until John said it, um, something that's an, a work of fiction with some historical context, with some truths kind of helping you understand the context of why this is so important, um, how people must have felt um, you know, being soldiers that come home and pretty much being spit on at every corner, being told that they're worthless despite being held up as these uh, heroes. I mean, that that is rough. And and the different the the four people that were living, their individual perspectives about how it feels to come back and what you could do at that time. You know, some people feel like they're victims in it. Some people feel like they're not victims. Some people are kind of, you know, mixed feelings about it. I do like that the, the, the men didn't have one voice. They were all very different perspectives on how one would feel coming back, getting that reaction from society. So I thought that was really cool, man. It was, you're right. That scene at the beginning of them meeting again and being friends, that was kind of like their golden moment of meeting again. After that, the past starts coming back to haunt them immediately. And, and there's no, there is no plateau where they get to sit and say, here's the status quo of these friends on an adventure. Every time you see them, it's, it's upping the ante uh, of what's at stake of who's getting along with who, of who, you know what I mean? And I think that that does keep it interesting, even for a movie that at, I think it's two hours and 35 minutes long. Um, it too feels like maybe you hit about a midpoint where you go, okay, now I know what the eventual movie we're watching is going to be. Um, and it does take, you know, the, the opening stretch might be seen as taking a while, but I don't know that this movie feels like it had any unnecessary stuff in it. It's just a movie that there are no real short scenes. Each scene kind of is developed into its own cinematic idea and Spike Lee lets it breathe. And often it's, it's an acting thing. That's really like, there's a long scene, a monologue in the, in the jungle with, uh, 
uh, uh, Delroy Lindo that is like, I think it goes on way longer than most directors would let it, but it also is super dynamic and captivating. And I'm like, well, what part of this would you cut exactly? You know, I, I don't know. I, um, I don't know how you guys feel about some of those sort of ex- experimental aspects uh, of this movie. But to me, uh, each moment kind of worked, even if the whole was a, a huge uh, pill to swallow. Like, I, I don't know that I could possibly process everything about that movie in one sitting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I do. I do feel like... So I guess the prime that people are talking about isn't necessarily that Spike Lee's movies were any less great before. What people mean to say is these these films are a lot more palatable to people who aren't necessarily in the worlds that they represent. And that is something that is important for things that are a little more... uh, broad in spectrum a little more nuanced um like you know vietnam and what it did to people and uh, you know societally you know how people could come out of this feeling the way that these gentlemen felt um that takes a little more nuance than some of his other films and you know whether i i, I don't like the argument that he's gotten better because he, he his films are kind of of equal quality from film to film, but like I said, a, a lot more palatable for the general audience, and that is a skill within itself. So I mean, I guess, I guess if that's if that's what we, what he's going for in this to to make this a lot more palatable to the general public, um, yeah, I think that this is this between this and Black Klansmen, they are a lot more crowd pleasing. Um, to the general public than a lot of his other films. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing sometimes, but I do know that it, it is something that is the reason why this thing is trending number one on Netflix. There's a reason why that's a, it, it's a thing. This movie and Black Klansman felt like more of a merging of the sort of political side of Spike and the, and the more palatable side, as you're calling it. And it almost felt like the joy of that aspect for me was it was kind of fun to realize that even Spike Lee wants to make a cool adventure movie he, yeah, uh, out in the yeah. jungle and have guys shooting at each other. So I feel like there's something kind of fun about seeing him say, no, I kind of want to do an action scene. I kind of <laughs> think I could do a really cool action scene, guys. Right. Watch. You know, like, not just he's doing this to, in, a, in an ironic way to trick you into enjoying it. I think there is that element of this this movie, if just the logline, could sound like a total mainstream movie. But almost from the first moment, you see it's not that. <clears throat> but he does give you those thrills. And it reminds me of, like, I don't know, movies from the 70s almost. I don't know if you've seen... Um, uh, Wages of Fear yeah. or the American remake of it, Sorcerer, which is, uh, you know, a similar thing of like men on a mission and right, a right. lot of them are destined to to face their fate in, on this mission and uh, what you're made of and what you deserve uh, kind of start to merge. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to see characters who are sort of on a suicide mission, whether they know it or not. People who were sort of feeling all along they were fighting a war that wasn't theirs to begin with. You know what right, I mean? I think right, that yeah. adds so much depth to this adventure story that um, wouldn't have been there without a director like Spike Lee. So I don't. I think, yes, you can say he's reaching for the mainstream, but it's also like this movie is lucky that Spike Lee came along to make it. I feel like beyond like it being more like mainstream or palatable, I think it is really... I mean, my, my take is really that it is something that does see the, the balance between how some might kind of 
you know, kind of look at the types of movies that he's made over the 10, 20 years, whatever it is. I, I think, I think that you can make an argument that like, kind of sort of what John just said, like, you know, if he didn't make this movie, that the other movie would not be as interesting. But I think the key though, is that, you know, he's able to still make a film that has a message that he wants to say, you know, like this is his voice. This is what he wants the, you know, the world really with Netflix to watch but I think the key, though, for him is is that he's able to make this film. You, you maybe you're right, more palatable. I don't know if that's bad or good. I mean, I guess if it reaches more people and you know they can see what he's trying to say and and learn from what he's saying and what these characters experience. I I I don't. I, I guess I kind of see that as a good thing. But I mean, it's definitely something that I think shows his ability to tell a story that is timely and in in a lot of ways historically accurate and in most ways historically accurate all wrapped up in like a treasure hunt you know kind of movie and i think um beyond like you know when you meet these characters in the beginning like i don't know if it was ronald what john said it earlier like you realize you know about an hour in like that was the best time that they were together and it was the time that they came together with every preconceived notion of how they remembered each other not learning about where each of them were in the world now, you know, 30, 40 later, 40, 30 or 40 years later, in terms of like where their experience in the war left them as people in society, you know, even amongst the four or five of them, you know, when, when some other characters come in, it's like you immediately feel even amongst their close bond and like, you know, what, what they were afforded, you know, in terms of this brotherhood that they formed during the war and that they took with them through their entire lives, that, you know, their experience in the world that they lived in today or in this film, the modern time, like it changed each of them in ways that they didn't even know, you right, know, among right. the, among their closeness. And I thought that was incredible. I mean, I thought kind of seeing, you know, Otis and Paul and even there's a scene with Eddie towards, you know, three quarters of the way through the movie, you know, really trying to learn more about one another and not even really taking the time to learn because you just think, you know, you know, and these characters just think they know one another so well, but, you know, time does something to each of them individually that is unique and, you know, they don't know until they start to learn it in, in some ways through, you know, really tough conversations and um, really horrific situations. But I don't know. I thought that was really my big takeaway for the movie is like beyond the performances being great. I mean, Delroy Lindo is amazing in the movie, like his monologue scene, you know, towards the end of the film where he's like literally talking to you as an audience member. Yeah. I think is like Oscar real worthy. Like I think he'll be in conversations for that, um, you know, come next year, but he's one of those guys who people have discovered after, after being brilliant for, you know, 40 years. He's the guy who brought us uh, Stop Eating My Sesame Cake. I mean, that's the main contribution to culture. Stop <laughs> eating my sesame cake. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, their their relationships with one another, um, I, I think is like the best stuff in the movie. And I think that um, like kind of seeing where they're deteriorating or where they're building throughout the movie and what, you know, all things considered, they're still willing to sacrifice for one another. Um, I just thought that was great. And I, I, I thought the movie was great. If you like these character actors, this is your dream. This is like the four faces that are like that, or at least three or three of them are like that guys that you've seen in so many things. Um, uh, and it's like, 
it's great to see that done by someone like Spike Lee, who's going to give you a different version of it. But it's also enriched by everything about that. But I love Isaiah Whitlock Jr. I love Clark Peters, especially Delroy Lindo. I've always admired, but I sort of I don't know if I've seen him, uh, you know, blow the roof off quite like this. Um, this was just a joy to watch in terms of the performances. Uh, and that's a main thing that kept me going through some of the, you know, some of the kind of tonal shifts and some of the, you could argue, aimless scenes of them walking about. But as you said, Steve, there every scene has a moment where they, they reveal something or some dynamic changes. Um, and you realize that the friendships aren't as solid maybe as you thought they were. Um, no, it's just, it's just really interesting. I was going to ask you guys what your favorite performance was. Um, I think Delroy Lindo kind of walks away with the movie, but Clark Peters is, is incredible as well. He's great. Yeah. He's great. Um, yeah, Delroy was so goddamn good. Um, I have a little bit of a bias for Clark Peters. I, I met him when I used to work at the Apple store and he was the kindest man. <laughs> he gave me like 15 minutes of his life. And I was like, ask him about obscure movies that he was in and he was so kind Did you talk to him about the wire yeah 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 the wire but there was that movie that he was in uh where he sold um he stole rugs with paul dano in it uh i brought that up and he was like you saw that movie i was like yeah i i really liked it he's like man okay okay and then he just started talking to me he's like yeah that movie was really cool he talked about the time that it took to film it it was it was insane that he was spending his time talking to me. But to be honest, though, like his that sort of feel to his characters, that love that he has in his character on the wire, all the things I pretty much see him in Treme, it comes through in everything that he does, man. Like it's like this passion, this like father figure sort of vibe, um, and I felt like he he was the substitute for their friend that had passed he was like a softer version of that that guy and seeing him being the surrogate father you know father figure after this gentleman died was was kind of insane man it, it just was it just was a really well done movie um yeah i don't know i don't know i enjoyed it I saw it twice. I would say to the to the to the whole like conversation about like you know character actors that you know you've seen all these guys in, in movies over time, um, but at least my my take after the movie was like when you see a movie that Chadwick Boseman in, is in and like you know he's a a big hot star right now, yeah. but like to be blunt, like he's you know the performance is probably you know less interesting than any of the other four male leads in this movie. Right. Yeah. You know, you can, you can just like sit with these guys and be like, wow, like this is their movie. Like he's cool, but it's a cool performance, but like there's completely any of them are blowing him out of the water. Yeah. yeah he's almost absolutely. presented as, as a, as a slightly shallower character because of that gauze of, of memory that we're yeah. talking about. Everybody kind yeah. of romanticizes yeah. him. So he feels a little bit less yep. flawed and therefore less interesting because these other guys are, are, I mean, again, it's not just that they, they're written to be flawed and interesting. It's that these are actors, each one of them who excels at playing depth with, yeah. you know, they've, they've, they've got, these guys have soared in, in, in bit parts like Isaiah Whitlock Jr pops up and says shit in a movie and you remember him and uh <laughs> nobody comes out losing in this but i think clark peters gets to play a little bit more of that like 
what this character has to live for, we, we see it more visually than the others, where it's more abstract, what's going on in their life. But each one of them feels like a real person uh, going on this on this adventure. And so the fact that they're doing it, it's like, it's tragic and it's, it's all these things, but it also has that kind of, it does give you that spark of getting the gang back together to go on an adventure, like a promise you made when you were kids and you're, you're fulfilling it. So there is that aspect. It, it does have an element of fun in it, even though uh, when you really are thinking about what happens in the movie, there's not really a part where everyone's having a blast <laughs> or anything. Yeah. But, but it does have that, it does have like a cinematic sweep to it uh, uh, that, that feels like we've said before, it's an adventure film in a lot of ways. Yeah, I loved every character in it. Um, I, weird Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Uh, reference, but I watched the show Apple and Onion um, on Cartoon Network, and he played a character named Mayor Nays, where he was actually a jar of mayonnaise. And every time he got angry, he would say things that ended in chip. So he'd say, like, uh, like, uh, Doritos and dip, something and chip. He would say that. <laughs> that was his character when he would get mad at things. I love that he carries that in everything that he does. It's really funny, man. Um, he could be in a Star Wars movie and he would still be required to say shit. Yeah. So that's just the way it is. <laughs> it's so good, man. He's so good. All those characters were good, man. I, I, I feel like, you know, we're talking about Delroy and, and Clark, but everybody in this movie was very solid. Hey, the tour guide was fucking incredible man um I, I forget the guy's name um but yeah it's i i felt like everything was moving on all cylinders like sure like the the level of acting you know for some of the natives was a little strange uh but i thought it was good man um ving vin trang i think that was his name vin vin trang they're the tour guide i thought he was really good yeah oh yeah 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 Johnny Johnny Nugent. You you mentioned earlier, Steve, the way the cast kind of grows. It is an interesting thing about an hour from the end when you realize all the people that are at play, and you know there's there's some people that are going to come for them, and then there's some people that they've met up with, and there's like there's different things that are going on, and the group dynamic has become this. It's become this kind of big cast of characters. It kind of swells up about two thirds in. It's like yeah, a huge yeah, group yeah. of characters, and there's so many moving parts and so many people who could do something something uh, to save the day or to make things worse. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's great. I, I was really impressed by it, and I'm. It did feel really special watching it um, on Netflix. You know, like it's it's in it's in that level of like fuck. This is on Netflix. Like they got a really good thing here. And I mean, somebody could like make an argument. This is one of the best like original Netflix movies that they've ever put out. Like it's great. Yeah. I, I'm going to have to agree with that, man. Um, you know how I feel about some of the Netflix stuff that comes out. I think that it could come across like they're putting second rate things on Netflix just because it's a platform that will allow for it. That'll give you the budget for it. But this is a different, this is a different level of filmmaking that we're watching. Uh, and I, I agree with you, Steve. And it also doesn't feel like it was a filmmaker who went to Netflix because they gave him all the money he wanted. It feels like they like you know whether whatever his relationship is with Netflix or they their their you know success in in bringing him to Netflix. But like it, one of the big things that is criticized about Netflix, and you know I, I'm a huge fan of Netflix, is just that they've sort of become like this will give it all to you, uh, studio, you know, distributor, whatever you want to call them, you know, with a lot of filmmakers that come there, they're making movies at a level that, a, that, that like 
the major four or five like would never budget for. And like they're kind of getting criticized for that. Like Irishman's a great example of that. You know, um, Bright is an example of that. Like movies that they put out that are having budgets, you know, over 100 to 200 million dollars. You know, when you have a filmmaker of his pedigree come in and make a film in the, you know, 30 to 40s, you know, of this quality and like importance, it's a good step for them to get a name like Spike Lee, to get a brand like Spike Lee and a high quality film that they didn't, that they weren't doing that thing. Where like they weren't making that movie that any other studio wouldn't make. Yeah. You know, I feel like there was probably a desire from studios to make this movie, to put this movie out, and they just happened to get it, and they made it in a ballpark of, of a, a lot of movies that don't get made like this anymore. You know, that's, that's not an insane budget, especially considering, like, what, you know, how it was made. But it's also probably a testament to Spike and, you know, who he gets to work with him and how he works his, his shoots. And, you know, I, I've never really read many stories about... You never really hear about him and, like, budgets being insane. Like, he's a pretty efficient filmmaker. And... It's just, I think that's a win for Netflix too. You know, like this is a feather in their cap of like, see, we did get a brand like marquee filmmaker to bring a really important film to our platform. And it wasn't, it didn't cost us a hundred to $200 million that no other studio would have ever made. Like, I think that's a huge factor to keep in mind too. Well, you know, it's like you always hear Spike Lee talking about how hard it is for him to get budgets to make movies and i'm always shocked and i think we've talked about this before on the show about how it's yeah. surprising and shocking when you hear about like spike lee or the coen brothers or somebody else has a hard time getting a budget that they want for a movie you're just like whoever you are just give this person the blank check and let that like that's a feather in your cap as you said to have right. a big right. spike lee movie however spike lee is going to make a movie for 40 million or whatever this one cost he's going to make that movie and make it look bigger because he knows, as you said, how to do it. But I just want to say whatever they spent yeah. flying everybody to Vietnam, that was the best money they spent because this movie is sumptuous to look at. I just it I is. just kept thinking, totally. oh my gosh, this is beautiful. And this that's another thing that gives it that, you know, that sweep that we're talking about that that's that carries you off in the story is that it really is like you sense the sort of familiarity of this place to these guys, but they also they're bringing with them all of the vestiges of what feels like modern day life in America back to this place. So they look like dads and uncles that you can picture. You know what I mean? Going back to this place. Yeah. And that adds a certain amount of humor and comedy to it in the early stretches, but very quickly it becomes uh, secondary to the fact of survival. <laughs> so um, yeah, a movie that, that tries to do a lot of things. And I think you just got to give Spike Lee props. I mean, whatever he's doing at this point in his career, um, uh, I agree, Steve, this feels like an important movie to me in, in his, in his catalog. Yeah, man. Well, that's all I got. Yeah, that, that's a that's a big old go ahead. Also, yes, just for those go ahead over to the couch, <laughs> and thankfully you can see both of the ones we discussed. Yeah, like this, these are you could you could go listen to them or go watch them now. Like after you, if you haven't, you just listen. You can go get them. Oh yeah, Netflix or your, your video on demand platform of choice for uh, King of Staten Island, whichever seems more interesting. To you. Maybe these aren't go heads. Maybe these are go get them. <laughs> get it. Get it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, it it does feel it, it did feel like an interesting weekend. Like I, I I loved, I loved the challenge of like seeing two movies that like you know were pretty high profile movies like that have come out more geared towards us as viewers over the time that we've been home. Like there's been a lot of movies that have kind of come out on VOD that are a little more family friendly or animation that some that we you know talked about on this podcast already. But like. 
this weekend to have like two movies of this stature come out, you know, on a digital platform, uh, like we've discussed, it, it felt kind of cool and special. And I, I really enjoyed taking time and sitting down and like having, you know, two really great movie watching sessions with Aaron and like just so totally sinking into this. Cause it's definitely just like we mentioned at the top of this show, like the theatrical experience is something that we all love, but, um, you know, without it, you make do and like, watching these at home did feel really great. And like, it was something I definitely missed because I haven't really sat down two nights back to back and been like, this is another movie night. So it was really, really cool to do that with, uh, with Aaron and like really just spend all the time just getting into both these movies. Agreed. Not with Aaron, but with Nikki. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Cool. Well, do you guys have anything else you want to throw out or talk about before we wrap this up? I think that's it for me. Nothing that can't wait a week. (laughs) <laughs> oh man uh, movieshmovie.com for past episodes facebook.com slash uh if you want to leave a comment uh, on the posting for this episode or let us know what you thought of these movies if you happen to check them out already or if you do after listening to this podcast let us know uh, what you thought of The King of Staten Island or The Five Bloods um, that, like I said Facebook's great where one of us is always on there at some point. So we'd, we'd love to see some feedback and even better is if you subscribe to us on anything like Apple podcasts or whatever your podcast platform is, if, if there's an option to leave a star rating or a review or feedback for the podcast at all on that um, subscription service, that'd be awesome. If you could do that too. Um, we've been doing this for a, a long time and I feel like we, we probably should have more reviews and more ratings on our podcast. So maybe that's, something we can work on and try to get more listeners to do that'd be awesome and we would really appreciate it um steve you're saying you want yeah. us to lose our status as the podcasting world's best kept secret i don't know man <laughs> i feel like now's the time man people are home people are listening let maybe we should maybe they we should let them find us let, let's let them find yes. us john let them please <laughs> hashtag let them find us let them find us let's let's make that hashtag happen good talking to you guys and uh we'll, we'll touch base next week and to anybody listening as always you've made our day thanks Bye.